You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Hello and welcome to the 602 Club, Track FM's local watering coming from the Happy Bottom Riding Club here. Uh, we're so excited to be here tonight. But um, just um, if you guys can hear me, just give me one sonar ping and one sonar ping only, please. Bing! Bing! There we go. There we go. <laughs> oh man, I'm I'm so excited about this one. I cannot believe this movie is this old. It makes me feel ancient. The fact that this movie is this old, um, and I'm so excited to talk about it with uh, two of my favorite spy geeks here on the 602 Club, uh, Christy. Uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. I think. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I love a good spy movie. And especially the three of us back together again after reviewing the Bond films now on this one. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. And John, it's um, when when I was thinking about doing this because it is the 30th anniversary of uh, the hunt for Red October. I thought, man, it would be perfect to have John on because we've talked all these spy movies together. And this is a, a unique type of spy movie. So welcome to the 602 Club. Thank you. And yeah, I think the 30th anniversary to the day uh, yes, is correct. As we're as, recording, yes. Wow. As of our recording, yeah. So um, it, it's, oh, well, you said something about it making you feel old. And I, I remember not only going to the theater to see this movie, me very excited about it, but I had actually ordered uh, a crew cap from the USS Dallas out of a Paramount catalog at the time. Mm. So I'd have that for going That's to see so cool. the movie. Yeah. Very cool. Oh, man. Well, uh, before we uh, dive into the show, just a quick reminder, of course, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, you know, uh, make sure you are subscribed wherever you're getting your podcasts. And then if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts, give us a star rating review over there. We'll read that out in the show. If you do, we really appreciate people supporting us in that way. You can find us on Twitter at TrekFM. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. And then, of course, you can find our listeners-only discussion group called the Babel Conference House on Facebook. You can be asked to let in, and we'll let you in over there. So you can talk with fans from all over the world, listeners from all over the world, about everything we're talking about here on TrekFM. We've got the contact section over on the website at Trek.FM, where you can send Christy and I an email. Um, if you just choose the 602 Club, that'll come to us. And then last but not least, we've got some great associate producers here through Patreon. Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millett, and Daniel Noah for um, supporting the show. We really want to say a huge thank you. It's uh, a very big thing to put this uh, network on each and every week. And as we're into 2020 now, we could definitely use um, your continued support and renewed support or maybe first-time support. So go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can be part of our team. Make sure all the wonderful podcasts that we're doing here on the network keep coming to you each and every week um, because that's the only way that happens is with listeners just like you. Uh, again, that's patreon.com 
com slash Trek FM. So, John, you alluded to this, and I was really interested because we're all a different age range. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, w- I was kind of wondering how everybody, uh, you know, experienced this movie for the first time. So, John, you were talking about, you know, going to the theater. What was that like, especially since, you know, this is 1990 when this comes yeah. out and the Soviet Union has just fallen but you're watching a movie about kind of the height of the Cold War. And and oddly enough, um, I had chosen that year for some reason in school to take a Soviet history class. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, okay. So, yeah. So all of this was happening around us as I was taking this class. And I, and I won't say I was a particularly good student in that class, <laughs> um, but just sort of vaguely it was, uh, it was fascinating to have started the school year kind of trying to put the pieces together and then all of these changes just happening right on top of, of uh, uh, what we were learning. It, 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 was, it was kind of mind-blowing, actually. Now, for me as uh, as a moviegoer, this was exciting because, I mean, 1989, 1990, these were big years for some very cool movies that oh, yeah. came out. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, first of all, I remember uh, the idea that it had been floated out there that Harrison Ford was going to play this role of Jack Ryan. And there was a lot of excitement around that. Um, and then this newcomer who nobody cared about, Alec Baldwin, taking his place. Who who wanted to see that movie, right? Well, I definitely still wanted to see it because the Tom Clancy books had really taken off. And everybody was just excited to see Sean Connery doing something awesome. You know, this was a year after... Um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and uh, he he was still just you know a very exciting yet uh, familiar and comforting actor to watch on screen. Like we we couldn't get enough Sean Connery, um, and you, you couple that with this being in the spy genre and submarine movies, uh, which will, will just sort of be a a genre of favorites for me anyway. Um, I couldn't wait to see this. And that's why I started out by saying that, you know, getting the um, the Paramount catalog just, you know, to date it, the idea that they actually had a physical catalog. <laughs> I remember those days. You know, they, it was yeah, awesome. Wow. Exactly. You know, you, you tore out a, a return envelope and you, you wrote down what you wanted and sent it in that way. Crazy, crazy stuff. Um, but, it, it, yeah, it was one of those rare instances where I, I bought merchandise prior to actually seeing the movie because I just already knew I was excited about it and would love it. What about you, Christy? So uh, I'm going to show my age and say, you know, I actually was two years old when this movie came out. (laughs) So (laughs) So she loved it in the theater. It was her favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I didn't see this until a little bit later, but it was another one of those that my dad just had to see. And, um, he actually was a fan of the books. And so he read the book before he saw the movie um, and got me into watching all of the Tom Clancy movies. I still haven't read a Tom Clancy book. I know, uh, but my husband has a few. I need to actually get around to it. Um, But yeah, so I loved it. I also love submarine movies, John. 
I remember watching 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea as a kid. Yes. Um, I, I just think it's, it's fascinating what it must be like to be a submariner. It's, um, it's really funny because, you know, I'm right in that position, um, where I'm old enough to have seen it around when it came out, but I wasn't old enough for my parents to obviously take me into the theater to see this because I was only 11. And so this was, this was, you know, a little bit above where I was at the moment and at that time. But I did end up seeing it when it came out on on video, um, which was great because, you know, uh, this is really a movie that I kind of grew up with in that way. You know, like it became one of those movies that I um, watched over and over again. Um, You know, even rewatching this movie, I I would say other than the... um, you know, it, and some parents might be more on this than others, but you know, there there is some some very adult language in the movie. Um, but other than that, this movie is is really a suspense thriller that is, I think, good for anyone over the age of like ten. You know, it's 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 that kind of movie. Um, and and so I was really glad my parents, you know, had let me see it then. So that I could grow up with this because um, it's a movie that, you know, I'll, I'll be hard pressed to say I don't still love. Like, I just, it, I, I love rewatching it. Um, uh, it's one of those movies I love going back to. Part of that's the nostalgia, but something I think we'll, you know, we'll talk through it here. I think it's also a movie that still lives up in, in the best way that cinema can. Um, and has aged very well, uh, even in the light of the technology changes and everything else. So I'm really excited uh, to be able to talk through this one with you guys. And um, so, you know, coming into this, this was a very different type of spy movie than like even most of the movies that we've talked about, you know, together. You know, Mission Impossible and James Bond, of course, uh, The Man from Uncle. All of these are much more, um, even comparatively to this, lighthearted and campy. You know, like this is very grounded, very realistic. You know, this is like you mentioned, John, this is coming from Tom Clancy's best selling first book. Um, and the the storyline, the hero, everything about this is it's much more technical. Uh, if you've read any of Tom Clancy's work, it's it's very detail oriented, um, and it's trying to make you feel as if you are in these situations with people talking the way they would talk. Tons of research went into this, and so um, this is also a book that was well liked by the government. Um, President Reagan praised it, thought it was great. Uh, you know, when it came out well, that they wanted to do the movie, the Navy was all for it because they thought, man, this could do for subs what Tom Gunn did for pilots. And so, like, just uh, coming into this, I feel like that this kind of helped set up a, a very different type of spy movie than most people were kind of used to when they went to the theater to watch, you know, a movie that revolved around spies. Right. Like, especially if you look at it compared to like Mission Impossible, there's a lot of things about that franchise that are a little bit more 
outlandish. Like we don't have that face printing technology for you to constantly change your face out in the field when you're in the middle of it. Um, Whereas this is really more like wanting you to be a member of the crew and that you're in there seeing as a civilian things that we would never usually see or understand are going on. Um, And you're getting to be part of what's happening rather than watching something that seems to suspending of your disbelief to go with all the time. Yeah. I, I mean, that that's the thing that really surprised me rewatching this probably for the first time in you know, at least more than five years, maybe 10 years. Um, they, they somehow are able to play it very straight and throw a lot of jargon at you. And yet you never feel lost as an audience member. Uh, it, it's not just techno babble for the sake of techno babble. It actually does drive the plot and helps to inform who these characters are and where they're coming from. Every time you get into something that is, um, uh, you know, a, a a bit of plot driven technology, um, and and as far as that tech goes, you know, the only thing that we really have to suspend our disbelief about is the caterpillar drive. Um, now that's not to say that this isn't something that somebody had conceived of, you know, in the military, that this isn't a possibility somewhere down there, but it was not a known piece of technology at the time, not to the general public. Every other piece of technology in the movie just feels very much like it belongs there. Um, in fact, one of the very opening scenes, there's a laptop computer and it's got sort of, you know, the, the green type on a black screen <laughs> instead of, you know, relatively soon after this movie is made, you know, laptops are a little more common color laptops come into, uh, into play. So everything here is just like, it's just sort of almost a, a, a year or two beyond what what you have it is nothing that does anything magic uh so it's really easy to look at this and go okay well from the year 2020 it's dated clearly the political landscape is different uh the technology is different and yet everything falls into place so perfectly um that you don't feel like you're watching uh a relic you don't feel like you're watching something where, where the technology takes you out of the movie. Rather, it just makes you absolutely buy into everything that's happening. As you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, it, it, is this kind of being a new type of spy movie where we're trying to make you buy everything legitimately happening? Um, you know, you were mentioning these the, the idea of like something like the Caterpillar Drive or any of the other jargon or technology that they do. They do such a great job of help helping explain those things in a way that makes sense. Um, and they do the exposition for those things so well so that um, as they're telling you about the Caterpillar Drive, they have like one character telling another character what this is because they don't completely understand it. But, you know, so it's like they find ways to visually and audibly um help you experience these things or even just um, like on the Dallas where they're helping you understand how sonar works. Yes. Uh, and the way that you have the guys, you know, you have the, the new guy learning 
about uh, sonar and and being taught, you know, how to to figure this out. You've got the age of computers really happening as computers are helping uh, figure out what uh, these these different things are. The, the way that they use audio processing is changing too. So like all of this stuff is done so well because they show and tell together really mm-hmm. well. And I think that's the thing that, that blew me away as I was rewatching this is that there's so much of this movie that they are having to explain to you, but they're doing it in a way that doesn't just feel like, oh, here's the expositional scene. Right. Because it fits so well within the context of what's actually happening. Because one character legitimately needs to be telling this other character what's going on. Or you're in a teaching moment. And then, you know, so like all of those things I just think really work uh, well in this movie. Um, And they never make me feel lost or anything. Like I'm actually kind of riveted in those scenes because I'm learning something new. Like uh, when we're talking about how sonar worked at that time in a submarine and learning what these guys, what their job was like, you know? And in some ways you kind of want this movie to be, um, giving us that reality and you can understand why, you know, the Navy would be all for hoping that people would watch this movie and be like, man, I want to be a submariner, Mm -hmm. you know, because this movie makes it look cool. (laughs) You get to use a periscope. Yeah. (laughs) Who doesn't want that? (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, the the script never, ever talks down to the audience. Um, And the only just very light humor that's in there really works. And I I wouldn't trade it off for anything. You know, having Alec Baldwin do his little bit of Sean Connery impression uh, toward the end. Yeah, it's just, it's great. Like, like somewhere along the line they realized okay we we need to break the tension in here somewhere somehow this is the way to do it without just slamming in a joke mm-hmm. yeah i especially love the scene between um connery and the other officer in his quarters when they're talking about what their dreams are oh. and the the jokes oh. The lighthearted jokes, like you're saying, of uh, the other officer saying, you know, I'd love to find a round American woman and <laughs> have have some rabbits on my farm and she'll cook them for me. Right. And maybe a recreational vehicle. Yeah. It, but like the thing is, you can relate to it because you're realizing when he says, oh, I can go from state to state with no papers, how that must feel to live in a country where you can't do that. Yeah. And yeah. that there was a reason for that scene to be there other than just humor. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that scene drives home so much about where they're coming from, what their impression of freedom is, what their impression of America is. Mm-hmm. Um, and these, what we would look at is just sort of like very, very simple, very personal uh, uh, ways to express that freedom. Right. You know, uh, somebody else, well, I'm, I'm going to go someplace and I, you know, I'm going to make a million dollars and I'm going to do this and I'm going to, it's like, no, 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 this is just something very tangible, very real, um, so personal to these people of, of what motivates them. And then you can extrapolate from that, okay, every other officer on board who's in on this scheme, they have their own reasons for wanting to go there. They have their own aspirations for when they get to where they're going. Mm -hmm. And it it, it speaks to everybody's situation on that ship. 
Yeah, I think it, it's funny you guys are like talking about that humor and and that conversation and and the realism that it adds. You know, I like to think that they'd get jackets that you know call them the the Bolshevik buckaroos, um, <laughs> right? You know, um, but you know, I think that's the thing that that drives this movie again. Like you you come away with a clear understanding of the motivations for everyone in the story, which doesn't really always happen in a spy movie but uh, like you were talking about John there's there's such clarity and and like how everything is happening and and why it's happening and 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 why each character is doing what they're doing um you know i think there's that's one of the things about this movie too i think why it's able to introduce this kind of like new realism into spy movies is because um the script is tight the the story they found a way to 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 tighten up you know uh, obviously Tom Clancy's books are are multitudinous in in length you know like they're just ridiculously long but they're able to find the core of this story and make sure that that everything um, that's in the movie is is what needs to be in there and there's not anything in the movie that doesn't need to be there like yeah. every scene tells you something about what's going on and i think it's just a it's a real testament to filmmaking here and you know when we think about uh you know the fact that this is uh directed by John McTiernan um who you know had a an incredible run of of movies there you know it, it it's just insane when you think of the the movies that he was able to to put together um, in a row, you know, and so here I think he's really he shows himself to be at, um, you know, the top of his game with this movie, you know, and so it's just I, I think, again, it's one of those things where it's like everything works when you come off of doing Predator and Die Hard and then this is your next film. It's like, yeah, you're you're finding your groove. So um, he he really, I think, brought. Uh, a real sense of I don't know, panache to this film. I think like there's it's just really well done. So um, and part of that I think plays to the fact of 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 who they cast because you know um, it, you it might be it might seem odd to have Sean Connery as as your main role as a Russian. You know that's not probably your first thought <laughs> when you think of Sean Connery. I um, mean, he almost didn't want to do the role when they asked him because somebody had already had the role and then they left. Um, and so they faxed the pages to Sean and he doesn't realize that um, because the, the first page that says that this is taking place in 1984 isn't on there. And he's like, why would I do this movie when, you know, like the Soviet Union's ending? Um, so he gets that page and then he's like, okay, yes, I'll do this. But like, what? What fortuitous casting in the sense that like it didn't work out with the other guy, so we get Sean Connery, and I I feel like his gravitas is what makes this work. Like you immediately buy that this guy is this amazing captain, and that he's made this decision for the greater good of of not only his people but the rest of the world in general. Like. So I just, I, I just, I, 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 got, I could go on and on. I could say <laughs> so many great things, but I'm interested to hear what you guys think. <laughs> I think you had to have 
an actor with the experience and the gravitas, as you said, Matt, that Connery has to play this role, because I think that it's just, for one, really carries the movie. Not that the other actors didn't do an excellent job, but I think that he had to be good at what he did. And um, I think, too, you're looking for someone that can say a lot with their facial expressions more than they would say with their words. And I think that Connery's so great, especially in this movie at doing that, where, you know, he's having that moment, like we mentioned in his quarters, when he's just looking off into the distance and you could tell he's thinking about his wife and how he mentions that she died while he was at sea and that his whole life has been spent at sea missing the important things. And now he's realizing what's important. And I just love the way that he plays the scenes like that, where he's not even speaking much, but you can tell so much more just from his face. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is a movie that is, you know, for a script that is full of technical information, it is also a script that does a lot of showing and not telling. And you you definitely get a lot of that from Connery. And, and yes, the, the references to his wife. Uh, and again, just the, like the little nuggets of background story about fishing with his grandfather and, uh, all of these little pieces that you don't need to dwell on, but they completely serve to build all the motivations of, of what has got him to this point. Um, and he is commanding enough that you, you get it, that he could have this, insane idea <laughs> but actually pull it off and have the right people around him to be convinced of the same thing um who who would actually want to go along uh, on this with him he's um look th this movie is just full of great casting and i know that that'll be probably the majority of what we talk about here um but he's he he's kind of perfect in it, and I will say that I think his toupee looks great too. <laughs> yeah, it does you know, actually. <laughs> yeah, at, at this point in 1989, we'd seen him without a hairpiece, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, in in 1990 it came out, but but well before this, we had seen him without a hairpiece. Uh, so we all know that it's not his, but it it just sort of like every little detail informs the character, and he looks great. He is commanding when he needs to be commanding he's a little mysterious when he needs to be a little mysterious um and it's interesting to see the ways that he is testing his crew all the way along through the story it's very cool to watch i definitely was going to agree with you john and say like the scenes where all of the crew are looking at him and he's waiting till the last possible second to pull the trigger i love and he's so good at pulling that off we for sure got the right actor from Never Say Never Again to be in this movie because uh, Klaus Maria Bandir, I, you know, he's fine, but he's no Sean Connery. Um, and, and that's, you know, who they had originally cast to be Marco Ramius. And I just feel as though it is so clear when you're watching this movie that it should have been no one other than Sean Connery. I, yeah. He could have played the captain of the Tupolov, though. He could have brought in Cosmere Brando ah, to play true. that role. Mm. Or, you know, or, mm -hmm. or the, ooh, ooh, the political officer mm -hmm. uh, who, who oh, accidentally slips yes. on his tea early on. <laughs> 
It would have been a great role for him. Yeah. Mm, nothing worse than slipping on tea. <laughs> um, so we we talked a little bit about, you know, at the beginning there, John, you were mentioning how Baldwin, uh, it was maybe going to be Harrison Ford in this role. And of course, Harrison Ford will go on to play this role in the next two movies of Clear and Present Danger and Patriot Games. But Alec Baldwin gets the the, you know, the shot here. I was actually always disappointed that he did not get to play the role afterwards because I feel like for who this character is, because, you know, this is the thing I think I love about this movie is that Jack Ryan is a CIA intelligence analyst. He's not here to be a superhero. He's a desk jockey. Yeah. He's a guy whose best work happens behind a desk. And yet when greatness is thrust upon him, he bears the weight under his shoulders. You know, he mans up and does the job that nobody else really believes in or will do, and he carries that torch. And I think it's it's a great picture of what true manhood really looks like, right? You, you take the mantle of what you truly believe in, um, especially when it's something that maybe you can see and others can't. Um, and just the way that he takes this on and, and, uh, you know, he doesn't want to, but he also realizes, I think, just like Ramius, how, you know, this is a thing where, uh, he will, he, you know, he could help stop basically World War Three from happening. So, and Alec Baldwin is just so good in this role. I mean, he, he makes you believe every step of the way. To when you get to the point where he's hunting down, you know, who the saboteur is left on the Red October and that he's kind of come to this place where he could actually be the guy that pulls the trigger. You know, it's just it's really, really good. I, I think, again, his performance is just in every step of the way is exactly what it needs to be. Um, and to me, it is a travesty that he was never able to play this character again. Um, I, I think he should have been given, you know, the roles in the other two movies. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was going to agree with, you know, that that's... Uh, when I talk about seeing this in 1990 and uh, being sort of disappointed going into it that we don't have Harrison Ford and, man, you know, and there there is no action hero star better than Harrison Ford, who could possibly play a role that was earmarked for Harrison Ford. And then I saw Alec Baldwin and I thought, how in the world can he not play Jack Ryan from here on out for the next 20 years? (laughs) He is just sort of so perfect for this. And I love that he was not not unknown, but he was certainly less known and not known as an action star at this point. Um, and it just shows you, you know, again, looking at this movie with the uh, the distance of time, how much has changed since then. And yet so many of these actors are, are just indelible. You know, um, Connery, of course, has retired from being in front of the camera. Alec Baldwin, we think about right now as this great comedic actor. And he is hilarious in almost everything that he does and his dozens of Saturday Night Live appearances. He's great. So you almost sort of forget that, oh, wait, this is what put him on the map was being this action star in Hunt for Red October. And he was awesome in it. Um, 
And I, and I, I also really like his youth in this role mm-hmm. because yes. you, you sort of need a guy who, um, who is out of his element. I mean, he, he is one of the youngest people. When you look at the leads in this cast, he is one of the youngest people there. Mm-hmm. And it really serves for this detachment that he has from what's going on. He's a desk jockey. He's a writer. He's an academic. He's a teacher. He's he's less experienced uh, in every way than all of these other people around him. But he's got the brain. He's got the logic. And he is able to think outside of just the uh, the politically easy answer and able to see uh, principle and able to see humanity in the situation around him. I, I like where you're going with that too, John, because something that really stood out to me about the character of Jack Ryan and then of Alex's portrayal of him is that there's only so much you can learn from books and then the the rest is instinct and gut and having good decision making. And so I think that that's something you really learn about Jack Ryan as a character in the Alec Baldwin shows really well is that eventually he gets to that point of they're saying, well, how do you know? And he's like, well, it was 50 50 shot. And I guess, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. but it was great that he he makes you believe it and then says that it was a guess. And you're going, what? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and yeah, I think they show the same thing with the actor that plays Jonesy with the sonar that, you know, he's asked, so you're telling me that there's a $40 million computer telling you you're wrong, but you're like, nah, I'm right. Yeah. Uh, Courtney B. Vance as Jones is great. Um, he, he is just one of those solid, believable characters. And, and you have to have a guy who, again, can, can sell it. That then when Captain Mancuso hears what he has to say, he's like, yeah, I, I'm going to trust you over what the computer says. Great moment. Well, I think, uh, you know, that's one of those things where uh, this is I think this is probably my first introduction to Scott Glenn. But one, I love that he has the same last name as my mom's side of the family, Mancuso, <laughs> uh, which is cool. great. Um, but him commanding the Dallas, like, obviously, this is what Sequest models for its, you know, um, commander later on you know like this is this is who they're modeling the character after is scott glenn and and this bart mancuso and so uh i are i think it's bert mancuso actually but anyway I, i love though his portrayal of this captain you know who's kind of thrust into this position of accidentally being the ship that can can figure out where the red october is going and then having to be the one who all these years he spent uh, with, you know, in the heat of the Cold War, which sounds weird, but I mean, he's <laughs> he's been in the thick of it, right? And now he's being asked to do something that kind of goes completely against his nature, which is to trust a Russian. Yeah. And I just, I love that too. And then you have that, that battle of wills between him and Connery, you know, with... Um, uh, you know, whether he turns the wheel or don't, uh, you know, whether uh, Jack Ryan should turn the wheel or not turn the wheel, you know. And so and these it's two great captains going head to head against each other, you know, mm-hmm. um, it would be like it's like Kirk and Picard going against each other on the same bridge, you know, and telling the officer to do one thing or another. Which one are you going to trust? You know, so it's just it's the way that he brings this character to life, I think, is so great. 
And I think part of that, like you were talking about, John, is the way that he trusts Jonesy. Like he trusts the people under his command um, more than the technology they're using. He trusts their instincts, you know, he trusts their humanity. Uh, and I think there's just something about this character, like uh, he doesn't have tons of screen time, but he's really indelible because of the type of, of character that he seems to have internally that brings this character to life in a way that makes you want to trust this dude, that makes you want to believe that, that, that um, you know, he has the best intentions all over the place, which is, it's just, uh, it's great. That's really great. When- oh, you, you said something right there that I, I want to uh, put quotes around because it, it really is, I think part of the the definition of this movie, and that is trusting the humanity of everybody around them. Because, it, it, yeah, it's Mancuso trusting Jonesy. It's Jack Ryan trusting the humanity of uh, Marco Ramius. It, it is Ramius trusting the humanity of his officers. It is Mancuso trusting... Well, first of all, that that Ryan is correct in his assessment, but also trusting that at the end of the day, regardless uh, of a career of being told who is the enemy and how to uh, outwit and outsmart and destroy them, at the end of the day, you also have to look at them as human beings who have a, a shared set of desires and morality and human instinct um, and aren't just simply the the pre-programmed faceless enemies that we have been told. Uh, I think that that's one of the best messages out of this whole thing. I think you hit the nail on the head, John, because I mean, I know obviously later, I think the biggest message of the whole movie is exactly that, that no matter what's happened over the course of time, that whenever you think that someone is your enemy, that there's always some commonality between the two of you. And that in wars, for example, not everyone is evil, that there are some people that are just the innocent bystanders that happen to be part of that country that are going through the same kind of feelings that you're going through. So I I like that they put that in perspective and show Connery saying, I had the chance to do the right thing and to stop a war. And that's what I did. Um, but I, I did want to add to just a, my piece about Scott Glenn. I love him as an actor. I, it's funny because I most recently saw him in daredevil. So I related him to, Hey, it's stick. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, his character as well is like the polar opposite of Tupolov because Tupolov doesn't care at all about his crew. What he says goes, and then it ends up killing everyone on his sub. Whereas Mancuso actually cares about the opinions and being a leader for his crew in a group together and not just being um, like the the um, dictator. Well, and, and what you guys are talking about there with uh, with what we talked about with Scott Glenn, I think, is, is uh, and his um, um, Captain Mancuso... Uh, it's really interesting because you get that same kind of thing with the James Earl Jones, James Greer, Hmm. where again, he's somebody who values Ryan. He values his, his intelligence. He values his uh, value of how he parses out intelligence and he trusts him implicitly. 
you know? And so, um, because he, he can see the value of who this guy is, maybe even beyond what Ryan can see in himself at this moment. And he continually is pushing him forward, you know? And so uh, when he says, speak his mind to, to Ryan and in that, that, you know, meeting, Ryan speaks his mind, um, and it causes the, uh, you know, um, Jeffrey Pelt, the uh, national security advisor, to listen um, to him and then to give him this mission. Uh, you know, I just I think it's it's great. And, and again, talk about gravitas. James Earl Jones, it just oozes off the screen, that voice, it, that commanding presence that he has. But what's funny in some ways is he's almost like this lovable big bear grandpa to to Jack Ryan's character, you know, and I think that again, there's this, we don't think of these guys having humanity, you know, who make these decisions. But again, I think he infuses this character with such a humanity towards those around him. I think that's what makes the character work. Um, you know, and, and honestly, all I can say is I wish that he was just on screen even more because he's so great. <laughs> well, and, and that goes with so many of the, secondary mm -hmm. characters in this movie you know um uh richard jordan who you know again uh, talking about sort of the 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 changes in the distance in time that this movie represents at least for me personally you know um richard jordan was francis in logan's run so in 1976 here he is this young cool and crazy bad guy in that movie uh, here he is, this sort of older statesman, very clever, and has some of the, you know, obviously most memorable lines uh, in this movie. Um, and uh, sadly, we lost him. I, I believe he had uh, brain cancer. We lost him far too young. Uh, but he he was great. And um, my gosh, uh, uh, Tim Curry as Dr. Petrov. Oh, yeah. So so wonderful. Another character that I just wanted more and more and more of. I love every moment that we get out of him, uh, but he's great. And, you, you know, uh, he is, uh, uh, lack of a better word, he is a, a disgraced uh, person now, but uh, Jeffrey Jones, uh, who is a terrific actor, and we really, you know, we remember him from movies like, um, well, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, uh, he was in uh, Beetlejuice great actor uh and here just a, a small role and not doing anything comedic um and that's really his strength is playing the straight man and doing the really dry comedic stuff in in his movies for the most part uh but he's great just a sort of uh, a tech nerd here in this movie somebody else who who you know every time they introduce a character it's like oh I, I want more of that person i want to know what their background is um joss ackland as uh lysenko uh so great and watching him being put on the spot by uh by richard jordan is just magic <laughs> oh yeah well you know the whole uh if you had told us earlier maybe this could have been prevented <laughs> oh you lost another submarine <laughs> yeah that's great yeah. oh Oh, Andre. Um, uh, but really, well, and, but I, I, John, Sam Neill, uh, Stellan Starsgard, yeah, well, that, that, Thompson, that, I, Gates, I think that's where we Fadden, had to land. Like, yeah, that, that's where we had to land is that out of everybody, Sam Neill, he yeah. is, he is just one of the coolest actors. And even though he has been in some huge movies, 
Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like he is sort of overlooked in, in a weird way. Um, that he's he's not up there with you know sort of the the top names and you think about the biggest movie stars. He is so awesome, and again, just very few scenes in this movie. But man, it, it, if I just don't get choked up every time he says that he would like to have seen Montana, mm-hmm. absolutely kill him. Somebody was baiting me on Twitter the other day with that very line, and I'm like, look, don't, don't. I'm gonna <laughs> the tears will fall onto the keyboard on my computer. That's what will happen. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I forgot his name earlier was on the tip of my tongue, but I, should, I said the other officer, but I meant Sam Neill was my favorite <laughs> part of this movie besides Sean Connery. I mean, without a doubt, it, like I said, the scene in the quarters was hilarious. I think that also in the serious scenes, he's great at that portrayal of unease when the captain is telling him to do something that he is so afraid is going to kill them all. And he's just going... Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and yeah. Ramius is like, you heard what I said, get to it. And he's like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and let's give another shout out here. Uh, I think an overlooked character in this movie, uh, the chief engineer, Lieutenant Melican, played by Ronald Gutman. Um, he's, I got very few lines, but so expressive and the way he is in this movie, I, I could just see him being in a ton of other roles like that. I love he's he's got those little wire rim glasses, always got the cigarette mm-hmm. with him. And you know that he's a genius. Uh, he has maybe he's keeping this state of the art submarine uh, uh, running. Um, and, and I think it's like, OK, I could see that exact same character and that exact same portrayal as like a. Uh, computer science teacher, as a uh, surly barista somewhere, uh, as a disaffected artist, <laughs> you know, trying to get a gallery show somewhere. He's just, he's awesome. And he does very little, yet everything he does is riveting and completely essential. Aren't you guys glad that you weren't on a submarine at this time when everybody was smoking their brains out? Yes. <laughs> Like, talk about the world's worst place for secondhand smoke in a place of recycled air. Yeah. It just seems like the world's dumbest idea on the planet. (laughs) That's what I was wondering the whole time. I was like, I I don't think you're allowed to smoke on submarines. Well, on the Russian submarine, yes. But I I, I wonder when they banned that on American submarines. Really have to wonder. It's a good question. That's yeah. a really good question. Now, the nice mm-hmm. thing is that with nuclear submarines, they're, they're much quieter. They don't create exhaust. You, you, and uh, apparently the air, air filtration is great. So they, they are as comfortable as they can be now. It's not like, you know, these diesel-powered World War II submarines that were just, you know, nightmare. Uh, but, yeah, I, I have to wonder when the Americans are like, okay, no, 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 come on. We, we can't do this. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, – we already talked a little bit about the the section I had thought of of, of like you know, really stepping up, and I, I think we've we've talked about how much that theme means for this movie, which I think is great. Um, but I I have to really thank this movie for actually helping me as a child come to terms with the truth about politics and politicians, mm-hmm. um, because you know when the uh, national security advisor says, "Listen, I'm a politician." which means I'm a cheat and I'm a liar. 
<laughs> and when I'm not kissing babies, I'm stealing their lollipops. But it also <laughs> means I keep my options open. Like, it is the perfect explanation of who most politicians are, if not all of them, right? Like, and I don't, it, I'm not, I'm not, it's not about whatever side you're on. It's just like, mm-hmm. It's it's been my experience of 40 years that he is absolutely 100% right and I just love that they kind of call that out here but what this guy does too at the same time right I love that they kind of show this this gray area what what does this guy do he helps avert world war 3 by making sure that um we we take care of this issue correctly like there's going to come a point where you know jack ryan can't have enough time to get this thing done but he's going to give him as much time as he can to see if this is actually the truth and again so that we can avert an all-out war here with the russians at this point in time and i think you know there's 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 a beauty to that right I, I think that's it's a really nice thing to see. So I, I love the way that this movie kind of deals with the reality of, of what politics is. And, and sometimes it's messy, sometimes it's ugly, but sometimes they can do the right thing. And I think this movie helps us see that, yeah, they might be cheats and liars sometimes, but they also can, can make the right decision when it comes down to it as well. Right. And using their lying ability, basically, to redirect i mean totally in the conversations between him and the ambassador for russia you know you could tell that they were doing this dance of they both kind of know what the other is getting at but they're not out and out saying it and so i I love that the, the whole way that their conversations go it's completely showing the power that politicians play but that they can be innately good or innately bad people at the heart of those decisions. And so I, I like that they portrayed the security officer to be a good person. Yeah. I mean, it, politics writ large, sort of, you know, institutionally and the, the, this broad definition of it, it, it's ugly and dirty. And it, it's this sort of terrible system that we have of, you know, people trying to curry favor and gain votes and make money. And uh, you know, it's all awful. Um, but, there is this idea that every now and then when it comes down to a human decision that people can make good decisions, you know, and it, there's uh, there's reference in this movie to like the, the Bay of Pigs um, and you're talking about these superpowers politically, militarily showing each other down, but then it takes human decision to say, Ah, we can't do this. You know, it, we we'll we'll sit here and rattle our swords. We'll intimidate each other. It it plays well to the audience at home, um, but at the end of the day, we can't. We we, we can't actually in, ensure the annihilation of every single living thing on this planet. So, but we see that over and over in this movie, where um, you know, the, people are trying to toe the party line. They're, they're they're trying to sort of do their jobs, and then that that initial meeting uh, with the NSA and intelligence officials—they're just ready to do the simplest thing, which is assume worst case scenario, assume that their uh, their gut reaction is correct, and then make the worst possible decisions based on that. Um, 
and, and it's the sort of this warning, this sort of morality uh, piece within this movie to say, well, yeah, we do that constantly, but we, we also have to be able to look at a situation holistically and creatively and, uh, and decide that we will see humanity. And that sometimes we could be wrong. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, in all of that, too, I think, you know, there's there's a thing here about crossing the aisle, you mm. know, especially politically, because here we're talking about the two biggest political powers and, and you have some people willing to believe other people on the complete opposite political spectrum. And it's because of what you were talking about, John, this idea of like, we are going to think about the greater humanity here. And if we go down this road, humanity could be gone forever because we make the wrong decision um, all out of either a spite or like you said, worst case scenarioizing any of those type of things, we, we could we could ruin everything. And so by hoping and reaching across the aisle with humanity and 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 it's it there's there's a a really nice thing in this movie about that we can see each other in different lights you know and 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 what makes this so great is it it you know it's so much about kind of what you see in in like a good star trek episode right like mm-hmm. that we would see the quote unquote humanity in in what used to be our enemy, you know, Mm -hmm. um, the next generation where you've got (laughs) Worf on the bridge where 80 years ago we were enemies with the Klingons, you know, that's the same kind of thing here is that we would, that we would be able to find a way to bridge between, you know, American and Russian and be able to come together. Um, and I think there's you know, what's interesting is that this movie, there's a, a political element to this that is now continuing even today as we're talking. So it's can can we get back to that place where where we can think about the larger humanity uh, instead of just um, uh, political divides? And, and can we we could think about the 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 greater good is there any hope to be able to do that and this movie sh- gives us a little little picture of what that looked like in the cold war through fiction and hoping that maybe that we can start to do that again so i i think it's great you know um it's it's one of those things where it's like it's one of those places where i think the movie shows itself to hold up very well because it is a movie about a specific period of time but it's also a movie that kind of has some larger themes that can play out in pretty much any time and place, really. So, and I meant to add to with your mention of Trek there, uh, love that they've got the USS Enterprise in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yes, that other Enterprise. Yeah, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. Um, what did you guys think about um, the effects? Uh, I know for myself, I just got this in 4K, so I was watching it then, and, and so. Uh, you know, so much of this movie is we've got the the underwater scenes and all of this kind of stuff. Does does that still all work for you? 
where did you see it in 4K? I kept looking for it, and my, all my streaming options were not. <laughs> um, I I went ahead and I bought it in 4K. Okay. Um, it it just came out uh, in it. a new uh, steelbook version um, mm-hmm. in 4K. So yeah, which was what I. I I mean, this is one of my favorite movies, so I had to have it. <laughs> um, and I think, John, uh, I saw on Vudu that you can rent it or buy it in 4K, but I watched it in standard. Great. Okay. Uh, yes. I, other than seeing a non-4K version of this movie, um, it looks great. The it, it, again, It's not about it looking slick it's about it looking real Mm -hmm. and they make so much of this look real yeah we're just we're stretching that a little bit you know the interior of the red october is bigger and sleeker than the other subs and it should be uh partly to drive the narrative of what's going on here uh so there are places like that where you're just pushing the tech beyond where it should be um, but it, it looks and feels real. There's really only one bad effect in this movie. And I remember it looking bad in 1990. And that's that last shot, uh, next to the last shot in the movie where you've got, uh, Ramius and Ryan on the conning tower of the Red October yes. as they're, uh, you know, sailing up the river. And it's just a bad composite with overly harsh lighting. Um, Matt, I don't know if they corrected any of that for the 4k transfer, but it's rough um not really it's not it's still not the best shot in the movie i will say this one of the things that the 4k does is add the hdr um so Mm. it really brings the movie to life it has the correct mood lighting like everything feels um even more cinematic if that's possible Mm -hmm. uh you know everything looks at the best it's probably looked since the movie came out originally maybe even better um but yeah i mean i think the fact that you know most of these underwater scenes were just filmed using smoke with a model (laughs) connected to cables yeah and then the computer effects were done to create the bubbles and other things like the particulates in the water. I was still amazed how good that looks. Yeah. Like it it makes you feel like you are underwater in the ocean and and very few movies in the ocean like this feel like that, but this felt as real as it maybe and it's probably not close, but it just felt good. It felt like it it fit and and um it it still looks great after all of these years, which is, you know, yeah, uh, it, it's a testament to the work that they put in. Maybe sometimes it's a testament to the fact that uh, you do this type of work um, and you don't overwork the plumbing and mm-hmm. it, it stands the test of time. Yeah, like there are really only a few um, establishing shots you need to make the underwater pieces look successful in a movie that you're really only showing the subs underwater anyway. So I, I think that that held up great. I agree with John. I think the only thing that bothered me effects wise was that scene at the end. Um, because it looks like they are having the background and then on a, a green screen having Connery and Baldwin. And it's just weird. It freaks your eyes out. <laughs> but the rest of it was great. I mean, especially with the explosions in the water and everything. I, I think that they really make you believe it. One of the things, too, about this movie is the music. Um, and so I wanted to ask you guys how you felt uh, about this score, if if it worked for you, if you liked it, if it felt like it brought the movie to life in the way that it's supposed to. 
Yeah, I think interestingly enough, I I usually am not the person that notices the music first. But in this one, I think that the music choice really gives a more epic feel to the movie. Having the like choir singing in Russian at different points, um, it really heightens the feeling of tension for me. And it makes it feel like this timeless story, almost like you were watching a Moby Dick or something. So I, I really was into that. Um, and then, uh, and there was a, an instrumental piece during, um, the scene where they're having Sam Neill and Connery talk that feels like it's building tension as well. And I really liked that. As soon as this movie came out, as soon as I saw it, I bought the CD soundtrack. And I can tell you that ever since, it has been in heavy rotation, both as a CD and then uh, later as a download. And I love this soundtrack so much. And in fact, I loved it so much. And I love that scene where uh, they've engaged the Caterpillar Drive and you hear, uh, you know, of all the sailors singing Soyuz at the time, the Soviet national anthem and, and now reworded as the uh, Russian national anthem. Uh, I think it's a great sounding anthem, and that has encouraged me to download Russian music. Um, mm. Now, the funny thing is, I uh, had a, uh, a a very close Russian friend in my life, and uh, I played for her the soundtrack, and she thought it was hilarious because it just sounded like a bunch of Americans singing uh, Russian poorly. <laughs> but um, but uh, the music is still great. And uh, regardless the authenticity of who's singing or what their accents sound like, I, I think it's just a terrific soundtrack from beginning to end. Yeah, I think um, Basil Polidaris, his his themes work so well the way that he works in the the russian you know the the soviet national anthem at that point um is perfect you know the opening there with with um the red october you know and it gets into this kind of triumphal uh point and then it pulls into the conning tower and it goes black you know and it comes up in russian mm -hmm. the hunt for october is so beautiful uh, and then the rest of the music, I think he does such a fantastic job of m mixing traditional scoring, choral elements, and then some great electronic elements to all make this work. And I, I'm a huge fan of the soundtrack as well, John. I love that Entrada put out uh, a special collection of it, which is a more complete version of the soundtrack, which I have uh, and love because there's just more of it. And... Yeah, I just it am right there with you. There's just some beautiful moments in the soundtrack and and when they're going through the water and there's this just gorgeous kind of choral refrain happening as they move through the water, you you feel like you're in an epic space movie but you're underwater, you know, like it it has that almost like Star Trek, Star Warsy type feel to it. Um, and it's perfect. It's exactly what you want to be able to kind of celebrate the the strange beauty that this is, you know. So I absolutely adore it. Um, and uh, it is one of the things that I think I could probably go on and on about, but I won't. Um, <laughs> so I did have a question for you guys. and I think we probably have already answered this, but do you feel like this movie holds up after this much time? I do. I, I think that... It 
even though it really heavily revolved around the Cold War era, that that's still something that people our age would remember um, and that it's something that still applies in general to what's going on at any point in history. There's always these conflicts between cultures and we need to remember that humanity and that we, we can be wrong about people. I really think that it um, at its core reminds you what's important in life. And I, that's why I think it still holds up. Yeah, I mean, you have no choice but to look at the story in historic context. And and that was the truth in 1990, even, you know, setting this in 1984, which was correct. Um, so, yes, you have to look at the story that way uh, in order for the story to hold up. But the themes are universal and timeless and uh, and I think just as far as a piece of filmmaking, you know, the performances are so strong uh, from top to bottom of this cast. And as we said right at the outset of uh, this episode of the show, the script is so efficient and so tight. Um, I I really can't think of other movies right now or within the last few years that, that I would even compare this to. Uh, so it's sort of a refreshing change of pace to watch something like this where you're just hit with the story right away and every scene is necessary. Um, every interaction is necessary. Uh, it, it's told so well that... Um, I, I would be really surprised if someone who had not seen this movie before, but is a fan of espionage movies, uh, movie, you know, war movies, uh, movies that have a, uh, a political streak to them, or didn't also take to this in the way that the three of us have. And actually, you know, going back to what you said early, Matt, about how the three of us, we're at different ages, but we all really like this, uh, that, I think speaks to how well this movie holds up. Yeah, the something ab about this as I was watching it, I was just like surprised that everything still works so well. And and I shouldn't be surprised, you know, even growing up with this, you know, coming back to it and asking that myself that question, you know, this is the 30th anniversary as we're talking about this. And so is this a movie that holds up? And I think one, it's a movie that holds up because it is a good piece of historical filmmaking about that time period. And yes, there are some fantasy elements and and as to uh, the, the the actual technology being used, the reality of the feeling and the the dread um, and the this the fear of the Soviet Union versus the United States at that point. And the fact that maybe it all ends because some madman does park off of, of you know, uh, the East Coast and just, you know, lop warheads, you know, the same way that, uh, you know, the um, the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. You know, that's that that's that fear. And I think it does a good job of kind of helping remind us of an important piece of history, you know, um, and uh, but more importantly than that is that when I was watching this movie, I was thinking how this movie helps us see that those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. Mm -hmm. And 
that this is an important piece of filmmaking because it also helps us see the way that we can maybe overcome some of the places we're in now. So, you know, I I think that's that's a great thing. This is the way that film can tell us a story and just as a good book can illuminate the situation in a way that makes it more palatable or easy for us to digest. I think this movie does that too. And it still does that even today, even though we're not in the Cold War, but we feel like we're actually in a new Cold War. And so it's, I think there's a, there's, this is the greatness of filmmaking, you know, and when you make a fantastic story, um, it can last for a lot longer because like we, you talked about John, those thematic elements continue to play out because they're more universal than they are just timepieces. And so it's, uh, to me, it's, I, we've said so many good things about this movie. So I, I, I think it's unfair to even get here, but, um, did you have something else? You looked like John. You wanted to mention something else. So. Yeah, no, I, I was, you know, uh, something that's from a storytelling point of view about how it holds up is, is that, you know, I, I think first of all that any movie that can effectively build tension and, and and get you to want to see the next scene, how will this play out? How you know, surely they're not all going to uh, uh, die when Ramius turns the red October face on with, uh, uh, with a torpedo from the Tupolev, you know, uh, that gets you into these sort of nail biting edge of the seat, uh, moments. That's always a great thing, uh, uh, when a movie can do that. But I think there's a, a really critical element here and it goes back to the performances, which is this is so well crafted by making Jack Ryan, the analog for the audience yeah, here. It's good. Everybody else is above our pay grade. <laughs> Everybody else is a, you know, a trained professional with decades of experience in what they're doing. They understand the technology. They understand uh, everything that's at stake here. Uh, but you, you have to have, and a lot of movies do this effectively. This one just happens to do it especially effectively which is let you see this world through the protagonist's eyes. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what sort of builds your emotional involvement and everything that's going on here as well. So I just wanted to kind of shout out to, to that as part of this, you know, lingering effectiveness of a movie that's 30 years old. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Uh, just in, and not one that I had thought of, um, but I, you know, as we spent so much of the episode, you know, talking about uh, the the cast. You know, I, yeah. I do think and one of the reasons, again, this movie helps stand up is, is because you have a, a cast, which is is really fantastic. Um, and and yeah. they they're, they're amazing and they're amazing and it's the way this story is told because otherwise it's it's a movie about submarines and mm -hmm. who cares mm -hmm. except for the three of us <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know yeah give me twenty thousand leagues any day um or das boot or run silent run deep you know we could make a list of all the great submarine movies but there, there's something about this one that also transcends that uh because you have this investment and you have this um uh relationship uh, as the audience through Jack Ryan's story in this. Mm -hmm. So 
with all of that said, guys, uh, what are you gonna what, what what are we gonna rate uh, the hunt for October? Uh, I would give it a four and a half out of five periscopes because it really just hits on all cylinders aside from that one little piece of feedback about the effects toward the end. I mean, it it has, like we've said, an incredible cast. I really love, especially John, that you mentioned the side characters that we don't see as much because James Earl Jones is one of my favorites of all time. Um, And I mean, who doesn't love him? But I think that it ultimately has a moral to the story. And like you were saying, John, it's otherwise it's just a movie about submarines. So I, I love that after all this time, you can watch it again and say, I got something from it and that it's something so universal, I guess, that works for anybody. Um, yeah, I, it, you know, I'll have to temper this a little bit with uh, my deep nostalgia for this movie. It's just it, it's been a favorite for a long time. Um, and you know, that soundtrack is just absolutely killer. Uh, that cast is so wonderful and and it's part of what dates it but also makes it timeless um and even with those you know somewhat less than passable special effects like that last scene um i can't help but love this and just be delighted every time i watch it and it was nice to watch it for this with a little bit of distance uh, that, that i had not seen it for uh several years um and and I found myself thinking, oh, great, I'm doing Hunt for Red October. I love that movie. I've seen it a bunch of times. This would be a breeze. And then I sat down to watch it, and I just realized, like, oh, man, I'm, I'm getting sucked into every scene here again. It wasn't just a refresher. It, it was really getting pulled into it again. And that's a testament to, again, great writing, great performances, um, really deft direction, that is stylish without being fancy, without being precious. You're not showing off uh, either John McTiernan or the the DP on this film, who, whose name I forget. It's just correct every, every step of the way. Um, so I cannot help but give this uh, five out of five cups of tea in the uh, captain's quarters. Very nice. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Um, I... Absolutely. Um, I had to go ahead and get this a five out of five. Um, you know, this is uh, this really is a movie that I think as we've talked about it and, and, and thinking through how much I think this movie stands up to the test of time. If you could do that and, and still portray the themes that we were talking about, have the character performances that we're talking about, you know, if, if all of that's working, that makes a, a movie that deserves a five, you know. And so I absolutely agree. It, it, this is a fantastic movie, and, and I loved coming back to it for its 30th anniversary um, you know, I think the testament to a movie is this. If I've seen your movie a million times— and I don't really want to pick up my phone much during the movie because I'm just enjoying the movie. That's a testament to how good a movie is. So this one passed that test. And, and so um, absolutely been a joy uh, to be able to spend this time talking about this movie with you guys. Um, as we're recording, uh, if you're uh, looking forward to the new James Bond movie, uh, No Time to Die, which we'll be talking about there in April, 
the tickets are already on sale, folks. So make <gasps> sure you get your tickets so you can be there opening night. Uh, this one is going to be good. I think it is the longest Bond movie ever, which I am super excited about to wrap up uh, Craig's time. And I can't wait to talk about it with both of you. But uh, before we get there, John, if people want to find you online, where can they find you these days, my friend? Sure. Hey, uh, if you want to talk Star Trek, uh, find me at podcast.roddenberry.com. Uh, for Mission Log, Mission Log Live, The Trek Files, those are the shows that I produce over there. Uh, and then, uh, of course, a multitude of other shows and uh, and others coming very quickly. Um, and then if you want to talk Bond or Red October or Spies or whatever, uh, hit me up on Twitter at DVDGeeks. See, that's why I didn't know about the 4K version. You know, I'm running off a DVD here. And then, uh, we need to upgrade that, uh, that, uh, that moniker yeah. there, John. Blu-ray Geeks. <laughs> exactly. Uh, or you can find me on uh, Instagram at SlowMoGentleman. And that and- is a treat. Everyone needs to follow Slumber Gentleman. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I need to update it. I need some new material. I, I've, I've been doing a lot and just haven't uh, haven't banked uh, some videos. So uh, that'll come. I promise you guys. Okay. <laughs> uh, and of course, if anyone wants to find me, of course, I'm in the Babel Conference. And then when I'm not here on the 602 Club, uh, I do a couple of other shows. Um, I, I'm on a show called Sabres and Spells with my friend Teresa Delgado, where we talk about anything geeky under the sun. Uh, we're about to do our spells episode where we're going to tell everyone how we got into Harry Potter. So, Matt, I'm sure you'll want to hear that one. Um and then I'm also on a show called Planet Leia on the Fanthatrax Network, where once a month, myself and five other women from around the world talk about Star Wars. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bespin Bell. And you could find me here on the network uh, doing all sorts of things. Um, I am doing this show, of course, with uh, also got the orb with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. We're hoping uh, to be back more regular soon with episodes, and we're really excited about that. You can find me on the Nerd Party Network doing two shows. One is Outpost with Drea Kaufman as we talk about Harry Potter each and every week, but we do that one chapter at a time. We are in the Half-Blood Prince now, so we're getting uh, closer to the end of the series, which is so exciting. You can also find me doing aggressive negotiations with john mills as we talk about star wars each and every week which is a blast with so much star wars to talk about and then last but not least talking about films the ones of faith with my good friend courtney over on cinema stories but thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back now you hear. Thank <laughs> you.